Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Radiohead. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Before we kick off the show this week, I just want to take a moment to thank all of you listeners who sent such wonderful notes when I was sick with coronavirus the last couple of weeks. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to the episode of This American Life that I was on last week and, and who sent notes about that. I want to let you know my wife, Amy, and our daughter, Conway, are all feeling so, so, so much better. My first trip out of the house in almost three weeks was this very morning. Amy and I donated plasma to the Mount Sinai study that's treating COVID patients with plasma from folks who just got over the virus and have high levels of antibodies. So fingers crossed that that approach will be part of a comprehensive solution to this virus's most deleterious effects. I am so glad to be back with you. And and joining me to help set up today's show, Nick Dawson, welcome back. Thank you. And it's so good to hear your energy at such dangerously high levels once again. It's <laughs> good to have you back. Oh, so glad to be back, man. How's how's quarantine treating you? It's thrilling. It's thrilling. You know, <laughs> lots going on in the talk house right now. So keeping busy. Happy about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I know you and I have been keeping busy working on this week's show. And it was one of those great moments where off mic, we both said, man, I really enjoyed the talk this week. Wow. Our guests on, on this week's show are singer-songwriter Katie Crutchfield, known, of course, as Waxahachie, and fast-rising comedian Whitmer Thomas. Yeah, it's a great pairing, and they're almost impossibly perfect for each other in terms of like two people whose lives and careers overlap in interesting ways. And who only currently met. In this talk, Katie and Whitmer take us through their careers from their beginnings as teenage rockers, both from Alabama, that grew up just a few hours apart, to big successes in their respective fields. And we get to hear about the processes of making their powerful new works. Waxahachie's brilliant new record, St. Cloud, just came out last week. And Whitmer Thomas' special, The Golden One, has been winning him massive new audiences and acclaim. I have to say, Nick... Definitely one of the best specials I've seen in quite a while. Absolutely. Now, Katie Crutchfield has been making music for almost a couple decades now, although she's still quite young. She and her twin sister, Allison, started a band called The Ackleys when they were teenagers. They went on to form P.S. Elliott, who had a lot of underground buzz. And then in 2010, Katie left to form Waxahachie. She began the project with a more acoustic sound. It's grown now to incorporate indie, pop, and full, lush, gorgeous production. St. Cloud is Waxahachie's fifth record. It was just rapturously reviewed on Pitchfork and received their coveted Best New Music. Let's check out a song that actually comes up a couple times in this conversation. Here's Fire. It ain't I take it for granted Such beautiful stuff, huh? Yeah, that's lovely stuff. And as we touched on before, this is such a great pairing, such an instinctual pairing. These are two Alabama artists. They're huge fans of each other. 
And their bodies of work have this, as they say, this weird kismet connection. Now, Whitmer Thomas is a fast emerging comedian and musician, and he sort of came up through UCB in LA. There's a great story in the talk about how he went there with the promise of a job that, that never materialized, but he really <laughs> rebounded brilliantly. Yeah. He kind of comes from this skateboard scene where like, again, in the conversation he has with Katie, he talks at one point about ditching his band because he decided he wanted to do comedy and, and skateboarding videos. And, uh, you know, he's definitely taken a, an unusual path to comedy success, but it really seems to be working out well. And he's open for such acts as Bo Burnham and Dimitri Martin, two alt-comedians that he sort of has this definite overlap with in terms of just an unusual voice and being almost equally in the indie world in terms of music as he is in, in the world of comedy. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to mention going into this for, for people who may not be acquainted with Whitmer's work yet is he's making comedy the way that Tig Notaro, when she came on stage and talked about being diagnosed with breast cancer, is making comedy. I mean, this is dark stuff, and the Golden One is part documentary, part concert, and part stand-up performance. Yeah, and even the setting for this special is very resonant. It was shot this this bar, Floribama, so-called because it's on the border between Florida and Alabama, where Whitmer's late mother and her twin sister were the house band. And it really touches on loss and grief, you know, his mother's death and sort of the specter of her and, and the dreams that she had as a musician are very central to the special itself. Whitmer is very comfortable staying in uncomfortable moments in this special. And he has written a whole album of songs, most of which are incorporated into the show called Songs from the Golden One. You can buy that as a standalone record. And it's really interesting. He's really taking influence from bands like Joy Division, Pulp, John Mouse. This is some weird stuff. And to give you an example, I want to play a clip of the song Partied to Death, which is quite self-evident. This is him talking about why he could not party because his mom drank herself to death. Check it out. Nick, that really gives you a taste of Whitmer's sensibility here. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's really cool when somebody with such a distinctive voice comes onto the scene. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one thing that they talk about here is having a distinctive accent. These are two artists who sort of fled Alabama for the coasts. And it's really interesting to hear them talk about their relationship with their home state. Yeah, I can definitely relate to being somebody who loses their accent after moving to one of the coasts. <laughs> um, yes, not a trace of Scotland to be heard anymore. I hope not. <laughs> Whitmer and Katie break down the benefits of a slower professional trajectory. Yeah, I like listening to that. But I also kind of hate people as somebody who's nearly 40. People go, I'm so glad that it was only 30 when I became hugely successful. I'm like, 30, <laughs> 30. <laughs> or the 50 and 60 year olds are going to hate me now. So I should just shut up. We're all aging backwards in quarantine, Nick. Yeah. Katie talks about how getting sober changed her songwriting in really fascinating ways for this new record. Also, they get into pre-album release, Shane, where people open up a little too much about their life and background. These are very open artists. And before we run the show, a quick note about Katie and Whitmer's partners who come up in today's conversation. Regular listeners will remember from last year's Valentine's Day episode that Katie's partner is the great singer-songwriter Kevin Morby. 
and Whitmer's partner is comedian Mitra Juhari, whose new comedy show, Three Busy Debras, just started last week on Adult Swim. Congrats, Mitra. I'm really psyched to check that out. Well, Nick, should we run the tape? Let's roll it. Ready and action. I've seen you play one time and it was <laughs> opening for Jawbreaker. Uh, that's so cool. And you said you played with them in New York. Yeah, in New York and in LA. It was the coolest gig ever because it was like three sold out nights at the Palladium. It was a dream. Just like punching the clock, showing mm. up at like five and hanging out and playing to a cool 3,000 people like who were all like jazzed to see Jawbreaker. It was the best. Yeah, had was, you played to that many people? Um, like at festivals and stuff and like always just like opening for people. Um, that's such a great room. Mm. And, you know, people have been talking about Jawbreaker reuniting for, you know, since I've been alive probably. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Did it was really cool. Did you do in New York? Somewhere, maybe it was San Francisco, my friend Claire O'Kane is a comedian was opening for Jawbreaker and she was like, it was like, it was exciting to be there, but it's hard to do stand up in front of a band. It's sad because I, as a musician, I always want to like marry those two worlds and I just feel like it doesn't, Mm -hmm. I always feel like comedians don't feel comfortable in that setting. No. And it's, it's really hard, you know, like I've opened for a couple bands, but I play music or I'll do jokes involving music. So, so it's a little bit better but doing like now here's a story about a date i went on is so difficult (sighs) in front of a band i could see that did you find that jawbreaker people were aware of waxahachie yeah kind of i think they were fans and so i feel like they really kind of like like spoke it into existence like this is cool we chose this band and i think that like because of that yeah. It was cool. I mean, I, I've been lucky. If you play with like a huge loud band, you can open for anybody and mm-hmm. you can kind of just tune out the bad vibe Yeah, um, totally. if people aren't excited. I've yeah. opened for people solo and it's hard and rough. Yeah. But yeah. Man. Like who? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Uh, it's crazy. The same shit with being a comedian opening for people. I bet. Uh, there's been so many times when I've opened for Bo Burnham or Dimitri Martin where the security people don't believe that I'm supposed to be going on stage in that moment. Really? They think you're like trying to just go? My name will be getting called and they won't let me through. Wow. That's wild. It's been, that's happened to me at least three times. That's insane. Yeah. It's so, it's crazy because it's like the highest high and the lowest low kind of at the same, in the same experience. Mm -hmm. Very like singular. When you can get in that really comfortable place of like playing to these really big venues and you feel famous, you know what I mean, in a way, but actually nobody really, I I find that, I found that people became aware of me, but nobody was like following me or really, um, but then I've noticed like recently people have been like, hey, I first saw you in Ohio way back when you were opening for whoever, so I was just a a nice reminder of maybe I guess people actually do pay attention, but um, I became aware of you and your sister when I was in a senior in high school. I guess y'all must have been juniors. juniors yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I want to know everything. Because here's why. I started a kind of an indie folky kind of band after I was in like a hardcore metal, grindcore, hardcore, screamo, that all of that spectrum. Yep. Then shifted and, um, start you know just was like saddle creek records <laughs> that was wow. my world you know yeah yeah and um i started a band with my friend and the name that we wanted 
was Ackley. No way. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. So, catch on the rye. Yeah. Cool. And then looked it up and um, <laughs> there was the Ackleys from four hours away in Birmingham. And we were like, what the hell? That's insane. Yeah. And we were also like very deep in that world and into that music. That is so weird. Yeah. And uh, were you mad? Mm, no. I think we still call our band. We called it Ackley Stradlider, which is like two characters from Catching the Rye. It's so funny. But like, yeah, uh, and he named his dog Ackley still and all that wow. stuff. But uh, yeah, it was pretty wild. And then I became a fan of y'all through that. And it was always this, well, you know, I'm from Gulf Shores and you're from Birmingham, right? Yeah. Is that where you go? Mm -hmm. Birmingham? Mm -hmm. And so were you playing at like Cave Nine? Yeah. And, yeah. Were you, did you see us play? No, I never saw y'all play. We played in Mobile once. Actually, the first out-of-town show I ever played was in Mobile. Where um, did you, do you remember the venue? I don't remember. It was a bar. I was like 16. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember it being a bad experience, mm -hmm. but I don't remember anything else about it or what the club was called. It was just like, it was one of those experiences where, you know, truly I was like, th there's really no reason for us to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that was our whole experience touring we would yeah. get, finally get a show at cave nine or something and then no one would be there like, oh yeah damn it i forgot about this do you remember like playing with bands in birmingham like birmingham grindcore bands or uh, anything yeah. like that really like there was who? this one i'll say it embarrassed like a very classically like uh, <laughs> I know stereotypical band called this day will oh, burn i knew it was this day will burn and we we were not we didn't look very seen. They you know, did. But they did. Big man, time. Big time. Yeah. They did it all. It almost felt like, and I'm sure this isn't the case, but it almost felt like they were a band where like their parents bought them all these mm -hmm. clothes mm -hmm. and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we would go on tour. We went on tour with them. And, um, you went on tour with This Day Will Burn. Yeah. That is so funny. And, wow. Robbie Moore. I remember him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember we played at a church in South Carolina and the guy who booked the show, the deal was that we were all going to get to stay at his mom's house. Okay. And um, his, he was bragging the whole night. My mom's making tacos for everybody after the show and oh, all this no. stuff. They're so excited. And then at the end of the show, they were like, um, guys, you actually... My mom said I can only have one band stay. And so... <gasps> oh, no. So the stay will burn. Got <laughs> the to stay. will burn. Damn. That's really <laughs> funny. Wow. Um, I rem when I kind of came on the scene in Birmingham, like this day will burn was the biggest band by yeah. a long shot. They would like pack out Cave Nine, like line down the street. It was like such a thing. I feel like maybe this is just because I'm Southern and it was my experience, but I feel like that kind of music really spoke to the Southern male audience For like, sure. in a huge way. I don't know what it was though. I don't it either. It was all lightly Christian. I know it was. We it were not yeah, part same. of that Christian. But I played a lot of churches, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird? You never yeah. were you you weren't did you you were not part of that scene? Really? No, no. I wasn't raised religious really at all. But I mean, being from Alabama, it's funny. I remember one time this band from California, um, this band Ceremony. Do you know that band? Yeah. yeah. They came to Birmingham, like, you know, forever ago and stayed at my parents' house. And I just remember they all got there and they were like, it's insane how many churches there that we passed like on the way here. And I never really thought about it before, but I was like, oh yeah, they're like everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. And the only way that we would often be able to get shows is if we said we were Christians. You or, would lie? <laughs> sure, yeah, I don't care. Or they would make us pray before what? the guy who booked the show at the church would be like, all right, before we go on tonight, everybody pray. Uh, and then we would go on and 
my brother, older brother's band, the singer would always say something like, the song's about fucking having sex with Satan or something like that. Yeah, and totally. He would just, yeah, it was funny. But uh seems like you had good taste all the way. Yeah. Pretty cool taste. Yeah. I, Allison and I were just like bragging about that so hard in like the most annoying way the other night when we were at dinner with our two partners. Um, Because they were talking about like, I can't remember what band it was it was like some it was like fat records or something like they were talking about like loving like rancid or something mm-hmm. i can't remember and alice and i they were like did you guys like were you into that and we were like no we were, we didn't have any friends but like we <laughs> loved the velvet underground and like guided by voices those were like our two favorite bands when we were starting to play music that's cool we kind of dipped back in like as we sort of started to play out and like became a part of the scene that all sort of loved rancid and nofx and those types of bands we would sort of like entertain it but yeah, we weren't we weren't really into bad music. <laughs> like, not really. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I had yeah. to go in deep. I had to get into it. Like, if I like yeah. rancid, I had to have a, like a mohawk or whatever it was. You would like fully commit yeah, to the identity. Fully. And yeah. then it wasn't until I got so burnt out on scene kid stuff. Like oh yeah, hardcore scene kid that this day will burn kind of vibe. Yeah. Then I dropped it all after that and kind of. I'd say that's when I started to get into music that had some longevity and wasn't so involved in like the fashion. Yeah, but it took me feeling a lot of shame about yeah. who I had been or <laughs> right. What I, um, because the the Ackleys like still now that there's not really any em- to me listening. It doesn't feel embarrassing. Like that makes one of us. But um, if you listen to my music at that age, it's embarrassing. Really, yeah. I would love to hear it. Um, there's, I want to show you at some point, there's this documentary that, I mean, documentary is like a really <laughs> generous way of describing it, but, um, this guy in the scene in Birmingham made this like short documentary about the Ackleys when we were like all 16 mm. and it's incredible. Like the accent alone, <laughs> like it's crazy. Like where did it go? How yeah. did I, how did my voice change that much? Yeah. It's, I mean, I can like barely understand myself. It's so Thick. Isn't that weird? Yeah. There's a video of me when I was 14 where um, I'm encouraging my friend to ollie off of a loading dock on a skateboard and I go, just don't be a little bitch. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? That was something about your special, which I also want to talk about, that I love so much and it's just like so our humor, like just because of the accents. It's so good. Like all of the like subtleties and nuance and the different types of insane Alabama accents. It's so funny to me. What the hell? I hate it in movies when everybody's doing the Southern accent that people do is like, I do declare a long time ago. There was a, like that doesn't exist. I know. It's like the accent in the South mostly sounds like people's heads are about to spin (laughs) off their body. I know. I know. It's so funny. It's like, it it just sounds like everyone's head is like smushed or yeah. something, you know. It's like it's weirdly like elegant mm-hmm. yeah, the way it's, it's nice. portrayed. But so when you were in the Ackleys, did you think like this is it? We've I don't ma- know. we've made it. I don't we're know. going to make it in some big way. It's funny. So like my memory of the Ackleys, like the mythology I have around it is like we were the biggest deal in mm-hmm. Birmingham for like a hot sec. Everyone loved us. We like could pack out rooms. We won a Bama award, which is a Birmingham area music award, went mm-hmm. to the ceremony and everything, won artist of the year. My mom still has the trophy. Mm. It was yeah, a thing. Cool. It was like a full-blown thing. But then we would go on tour and everybody would hate it. Um and not oh, hate yeah. it, but it just wouldn't care. It was like ambivalence. Yeah. Um which is, you know, everybody's first experiences on tour. But then, you know, Allison and I kind of 
we were like grappling with like where the music went because when we started it was we were really influenced by super lo-fi stuff like like Velvet Underground and Got It By Voices like I mentioned and um we kind of like got away from that because it got really polished and the two boys that we were in the band with were like insanely talented musicians and the recordings were really polished and um so we just sort of wanted to start over so we started our band P.S. Elliot mm-hmm. and then everyone hated it like everyone in Birmingham hated it oh. But then we'd go on tour and people would kind of like respond to it. So it just it was like this weird kind of experience where we went from being like super accepted in the scene in Birmingham to then like really kind of combating a lot of stuff within it. And which is ultimately, I think, why we ended up both leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And, and where did y'all live in P.S. Elliot? Well, so Allison lived in Tuscaloosa. And when I, I lived in Tuscaloosa briefly and then she moved to Chattanooga and I moved back to Birmingham and we kind of existed like that for a little while. And then we both moved to New York. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then, so, yeah, so, man, it's just it's just funny to be a kid in a band and thinking about the future and how exciting everything is and how actually nothing is really, you know what I mean? <laughs> I know. It's, it's a weird um, thing. I, I remember being, a, like, having the aspiration of, like, this little record deal, putting out this EP that my hardcore band put out and thinking like well you know after this it's we're just gonna have all the choices in the world and (laughs) wow um then actually thinking about it and realizing oh this is just some kid in his mom's basement who's like putting this album out for us you know it doesn't mean anything it's really cool but and then you know what i was thinking about recently is um i quit the band we all quit me and all my other 17 year old friends Mm -hmm. when we were 17 Mm -hmm. and um or maybe 16, and but our drummer was 23. Yeah. And we quit the band right before the release of our EP. And I think we might have ruined his life. Really? Oh, no. <laughs> that's We were just that's kids. Heavy. Yeah. We were like, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to make videos and skate and just play other styles of music. Yeah. And then he was like, no, guys, this is my thing. <laughs> this is like, yeah, this is my life. Yeah. Wow. Where is he now? <laughs> he lives in Alabama. Cool. He's doing all right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, yeah. I, I'm so curious, like, what your trajectory was, like, because you were playing music and you were skating and all that stuff, and then you moved to L.A. Like, when did your stand-up comedy or your comedy dreams start at all? Like, did you ever see that for yourself at that time? No. When I was a kid, when I was, you know, in Alabama, I, I just wanted to move away. Yeah. And then I wanted to be a, an actor. I, I met some guy, basically, in, in Florida who worked for a special effects company in L.A., mm-hmm. and then... He said he would give me a job as a PA if I ever moved out to LA. And that was my senior year of high school. So I was like, I'm moving to LA. Like, I have a job. Everything's going to be cool. And then I moved to LA and that guy never answered my phone call. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I was trying to be an actor and then really quickly learned like, oh, actors aren't necessarily the coolest. And maybe if I was like wanting to be around cooler actors, I would have should have moved to New York or existed in a different decade or something. So I started doing comedy at, at UCB. And then through that, I um, started a show with my friends called Power Violence and then started doing stand-up in that show. And then, But we were still in, we were in a band that was called Tooks that would play all over LA and just kind of California. Part of that kind of garage explosion scene, like... Um, 
Ty Siegel and that yeah. that kind of group. Like we would play with bands adjacent to those guys who were doing really well. Yeah. But it, nobody really took us seriously because we were such idiots. We had a very Alabama vibe to us, and it was really because it was three guys from Alabama wow. and then a guy from California. But you know, we would goof off on stage. We talk way too much in between <laughs> songs. And there was nothing mysterious or cool about us. Yeah, and I think some bands that we would play with really hated like our personalities. Really? Yeah, and uh. our, we didn't have a cool aesthetic. We, you know, we just didn't know what the hell how to be professional yeah and so in a way we just dropped our instruments and started comedy yeah and then that was like almost 10 years ago but. were they like the guys in tooks were they like guys that you grew up with mm -hmm. oh cool they were the guys who were in the band with me say your last was the name of my like screamo band <laughs> um, like really say your last yeah <laughs> that's amazing that that was the name and also uh that you guys have been friends that long and you're all still friends now yeah Wow. And we all live out here still. That's so cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we all do kind of different things. Then me and Clay, my like creative partner, yeah. still work together all the time. So when did P.S. Elliot end? Um, well, it's so funny that you say that you guys all quit the band and like the week of the EP or whatever, like that's basically what happened to P.S. Elliot. Like the guitar player um, quit the band uh, about a month before our second album came out. And we had been on like a really nice steady kind of uprise. And, you know, we, it was all super DIY. Like we would set up our own tours and stuff, but people would really come out and like, we're really starting to respond. And um, that, you know, was super steady. And we were about to put this record out. And then he sort of just like up and quit and it sucked. So we ended up kind of shifting the lineup around and stuff, but the magic of the original four of us just was kind of gone. And, that was right around when we moved to New York, and I just, I was really kind of becoming self-aware enough to realize that I just don't work well in, like, a group setting like that. I, I was writing all the songs for P.S. Eliot, but it was kind of naively treated as a democracy. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was constantly fighting with everybody about stuff because I just had such a vision, you know, yeah, and, yeah. I, um, and I just didn't want to share that kind of control. So I was like, I'm going to start my own project and pretty immediately after um P.S. Elliot went like straight into focusing on Waxhatchee I know that you probably explained the band name That's but okay. I feel like maybe not to to some people who, yeah. <laughs> um what, what was that something that you were thinking about for a long time naming a band Waxhatchee no not at all well I so Allison and I so we grew up in Birmingham but yeah. then um my parents always had a place that forever was just like a little double wide trailer on like a giant lot on the this lake in Birmingham and it was on Waxhatchee Creek. So yeah. my whole life, like I've been saying that. Same. Yeah. I've been saying it my whole life yeah, too. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Wow. So I wrote the first batch of songs there and kind of was using it as a placeholder name. And then I just got like really attached to it. And it's been cool because in every album, like, you know, that I've been doing the band for like 10 years now and on every record, I mean, it just is the one common thread, like that as the setting, mm -hmm. as I like flash back to like my childhood or my like teenage years or whatever, like it, it always like comes back. So it's been weirdly like it's, it's like stood the test of time as the right name for the yeah. band. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Cool name. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. That's the same thing that kind of happened to me. I, it, it, it's a scary thing, you know, to go alone. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I was excited, you know, I, I think that fear kind of, for me at least, propelled me to really take comedy and 
everything seriously and really try to, I didn't have anybody else to rely on, you yeah. know, going by myself after my sketch group ended. <laughs> um, it was a pretty, I kind of encourage everybody, you know, to try to be by themselves. I remember a long time ago reading something about from Chris Rock where he's giving advice to artists and he said, uh, you know, if you can, be try to make things alone. Don't rely on other people too much. And I did never take that advice until a few years ago, but it's a kind of a wild. Was right when you started doing Waxahachie, did you, do you feel like people were like, oh, this is, this is cool or did it take a, a little while? I feel like I I always sort of saw, I mean, just to kind of go back to what you're saying about working on stuff alone, like I feel like I always sort of had the the structure of that. Like I I know I can like write stuff alone. It was just like the support of the group to kind of like elevate it or whatever. So I feel like Waxahachie, I had to like sit with it for a minute. It like really didn't like immediately take off by any means. I like needed to kind of like work work up to that or something. Mm-hmm. I the first record I made for Waxhatchee, I sat on it for like a year and the only people that heard it were me and Allison. And then eventually it got released and then it was kinda like a word of mouth thing. But the the pace of like my whole trajectory has been very I would describe it as healthy. It's been like very slow and fast at the same time. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It's like it's nice that you don't become I mean, probably telling your 21-year-old self this is, would be impossible. But it's like, I'm really grateful that nothing started to work out for me until I was in my, really until I was 30. Yeah. Like, I, and it's also cool. Like, your new record I in, in your 30 is like, it feels like this is the the one, you know, listening yeah. to it. It's, oh, cool. And it's so much more grown up. And <laughs> it almost feels like you, your voice is like... Final form, you know what I mean? That's <laughs> like great. In <an> anime, <laughs> <laughs> I've, yeah, yeah, I've no. assumed my final form. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's cool. That's, that's and I was lo- I was looking at the comments too on your YouTube. <laughs> oh <and> no, <laughs> everybody is being so complimentary to the way that you sing, fire. Yeah, yeah, the way that you sing in the beginning. How nice. it's like it feels like you're being really um, just making choices that I haven't really heard on your other albums. You know, with your voice. Yeah. It's cool. Thank you. Yeah, I feel that way a little bit. I mean, I got sober like a year and a half ago, and so I feel like that is a big part of it. Like, I, I just am like a different person than I was two years yeah. ago. So the last record I made, I was going through a really bad breakup and um, with a, just a guy who I collaborated with a lot, and um, it was just like super toxic, unhealthy relationship for a lot of reasons. And Mick Jagger. Um, yeah, yeah it was, You can yeah, say it was Mick Jagger. It was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> It uh yeah it it was wild and um that record I love it so much but it's super claustrophobic it's like so raw and like emotional and just there's all this like atmosphere when you hear it it's like oh there's no space and I just knew kind of right as I got sober at the end of the like record cycle of that record I was like I don't know what I want to do but I just want to do something completely different on the next one so it feels like this one has a lot of space a lot of perspective it's different than anything too yeah I think that this is um I think your your music I can hear it and a lot of young female artists like how it's inspired people but I think this one is going to I think it will inspire people from uh, the middle of nowhere in a in a cool kind of way your your music has always been hip and cool you know <laughs> and I think it's like cool kids who went to Amoeba and or whatever rough trade in, you know in New York and LA uh-huh. and but now this album is very accessible in a 
I think all, your music has always been accessible, but this one is like, it feels almost like, um, it, it just makes sense for somebody to be from like Alabama and singing this when they're 30 years old and they've had all these bands and all these, you know, different ups and downs or whatever, you know what I mean? The way yeah. that it's composed is really cool. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> That's very, very kind. No, I, I really appreciate it. I love like, I mean, not to just jump straight into it, but like I, I love like your special, I think for a lot of reasons, I really related to it. And I feel like part of it is cause it, cause I'm from Alabama and I just like relate to so much of the, like the nuance and the complexities that you sort of are able to, to touch on about being Southern, like all the stuff that we sort of, I mean, as, as people who grew up in the South, who now like, you know, work in the entertainment industry or whatever, you know, like live on the coasts, all that stuff like that we sort of wrestle with and that it's a lot. Yeah, There's a lot going on. It's weird, man. I, my whole time being out in LA, I was making comedy as part of like an alternative weirdo comedy scene that I felt like people in big cities understood. Yeah. Like Chicago, New York, Philly, LA. But it wasn't until the last few years that I was like, I really want something that hopefully everybody will be able to enjoy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... I hope that people are able to watch it from the middle of nowhere. And I hope that like parents can watch it and all that kind of stuff and get something out of it. Yeah. When I watched it, so I, I saw what's special a few nights ago at the premiere of it. And I honestly, like, I feel like my immediate thought when it ended was like, I have, there's like 50 people I can think of that I want to text right now and tell them you have to watch the special for different reasons, you know, because I feel like it's obviously so funny and you're so funny, but I feel like it's, emotional it like really touches on so much like family stuff and like addiction stuff and um identity stuff and it's just it's really it's really something I really feel like I've never seen anything quite like it before and I have so many questions about it but one of them is do you feel like because it's so personal and it's so it's so heartbreaking and and just goes so deeply into things that you know are shared experiences like loss and codependency and addiction, all that stuff. Like, do you feel like you're now going to have to field a lot of people's stuff? Like, do you feel like people are going to come up to you and they're going to be like, I love you. I relate to you so much because of this, that, or the other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to. I think, um, I already do. I've yeah. been do- touring, doing this golden one show for a few years and it's wild, you know? It, yeah. It's been, you know, it used to be that I would do the show to maybe 20 people mm-hmm. and, a couple of those people would say something really nice afterwards and, um, you know, their parent died or their friend or they're an alcoholic or their mo- parent was an artist in some way or something like that. Um, but then, you know, I've, I've kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it and more people have started to come to the show. More people have started to send me, like, these amazing DMs and or come up to me. And, you know, somebody came up to me the other night and said... um, that their husband had just died. Wow. And there's, or like a year before, and he was a musician, and her 11 year old son just started playing guitar. And then watching my show gives her like some type of hope that maybe he'll be able to do something for his dad in that kind of way. I didn't think about any of that going really? into this. I, I just was desperate for a, something, you yeah. know? So I, I just wrote about all I really knew. So or what I was really going through at the time. So I, I hope that people connect to it in that way because that's, I think, who it's for. And I think it's similar with, you don't think about it with stand-up as much because my, I try, I'm just trying to get people to laugh and be silly and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, I, I, it's like the, 
there is a musicality to the show, I guess, in the way that you learn, I guess, a little bit more about me than maybe a lot of comedy specials. So I hope that people connect. I always joke that like my girlfriend Mitra's fans come up to her and they're like, you're so funny and I love your writing and all that stuff. And then if someone comes up to me, it's usually someone who's like, my mom died and uh, <laughs> I appreciate what you did or something. You know, it's uh, it's yeah. like a different, it's a different thing, but I, I welcome it and I, I, I think uh, it's cool, you know? Yeah, it's literally the same with me and my boyfriend. Like, it's always like people like, Morby, you know? Like, yeah, and they're yeah. like, like, I love, you know, your shit, man. And then it, for me, it's like, I'm going through a breakup and like, I just like, your music is like getting me through. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that. it's the same. I think you got to be ready for that I'm with ready. this one. I'm this ready. is going to be <laughs> even more. I think also this, the spectrum of the types of people who like your music is going to like change. And I think the demographic is going to, broaden out a bit in a cool kind of way. Like, I could see you singing some of these songs in, like, a rhinestone cowboy hat. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty cool. It's funny. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about this, which is related to that, which is, so, okay, you talk a lot about growing up and your mom was a musician, and her music, like, feels really of its time. Like, it feels like it's sort of, like, pop 80s sort of music. And I'm curious, because you're from the South, like, did you grow up with country music? Was she a country music fan? Yeah, she was. I'm trying right now to release her two, like, EP demo things. I don't know what to call them, but there's one that's four songs and it's all synth 80s pop, which is what you heard, the Mm -hmm. He's Hot song, Mm -hmm. and which you can find now on the internet. But, uh, and then there's another one, which is eight songs of, like, very country songs, like with, you know, banjos and slide guitar and all that stuff. By the time I was um, able to kind of understand genre, my mom was playing more country-inspired stuff. It was more like sad, folky country music, kind of similar to kind of the stuff that you're playing on the new album. But something that I always joke about is like... (laughs) If somebody broke up with my mom, like her boyfriend broke up with her, I would hear her that night just hitting her piano going, why'd you break up with me? Oh my <laughs> God. Like, trying to come up with a new song. Me, if I ever have a kid, that's literally what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, that's really It would funny. just be right there, yeah. you know? So there was more country. In the Floribama, they... You know, my mom's band, Sin Twister, was the first not... They were the first women to... Be really? like regulars at the Floribama and also the first non-country band because wow. they started playing more like synthy pop with a reggae yeah. twist somehow. You know, I don't know. They lived I, in Jamaica for a while. That's that I was watching your special this morning and Kevin like looked up when that that song came on, the um the more reggae one, like at the beginning. Yeah. Um, when you're playing the tape and he was like, What is this? It rules. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that one. Um, that one's called what is that one? Most unusual night. It's really good. It's yeah. about my mom um, hooking up with a random man, <laughs> <laughs> which is like all of her songs. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize. Uh, that's really funny. But yeah, she, the country. It was there. You know, Bonnie Raitt was like her number oh, one. Oh God, be still my heart. That's yeah, so cool. They do a cover of a Bonnie Raitt song that was really good. That hopefully the world will hear. But um. Yeah, what about you? Is that what you your parents were listening to? Oh, yeah, big time. And I mean, I feel like I rejected it. That's why this record for me is interesting because I feel like that was like my formation. Like my musical formation was like country music and like I have like a more traditional sounding voice. And when I first started writing songs, it was more, um, 
you know, it was like super saccharine melodies, you know. And then when I got a little bit older and started to play out, I feel like I was I was into weird music and punk rock and stuff like that. And then so I would really fight with it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is the first record where I finally stopped kind of fighting with it and just yeah. like let it be what it you is. You can hear it. Yeah. It's really cool. Thank you. It's like um, there's something about being 30. I know. I don't know what it is. It's like an ease. It is. It's yeah. like, especially when you've done it, you've like been around for years and struggled and, yeah. you know, it's like, I'm 30 now. I just want to be myself. Like, totally. Let it happen. You know? Yeah. I, it's really cool. Do you feel, so this is the first time I've ever put something out where I, I, I've like really poured it all out, you know, mm-hmm. my whole heart and soul in it. I've I've put out stuff on music on SoundCloud and I've put clips of myself on YouTube. I've like made other little things, but this is the first one. You've done a bunch of albums, which is similar, but so you've like had this feeling a bunch where you like poured your heart into soul and something. Now you gotta wait for people to hear it. Do you feel uh, extreme embarrassment? <laughs> like right, before, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Do of you course. feel like ashamed? Yes. Of, like, what did I do? Yeah. And then people hopefully respond, and then it makes it go away for ten minutes. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. That, I mean, it's something I talk to with all my musician friends quite a bit that kind of leading up to it coming out. Into, once it's in the world, it belongs to everyone and you can really, like, let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just naturally will. But up until you put it out into the world, you sort of, like, I feel like I waver between, like, am I a genius, you know? Yeah. And, and then, like, this is the worst thing I've ever made. I can't believe that this is what's going to come out. Like, it's just, you sort of bounce between those two, I think, Yeah, I gotta, on a pretty constant basis. I got to talk to musicians more because <laughs> I, t- I try to have this conversation with comedians and they're like, no, I feel great. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> wow. I'm really good. And then <laughs> I'm like, oh, dang it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, not me. I, I mean, I definitely have those moments of like this rules and then you know 20 minutes later yeah Yeah. writing it feels good and then really not for me I mean it does I have the same experience from the beginning of starting to write it until it is in the world yeah then I can kind of let it go a little bit but yeah yeah I guess I don't really know for me I wrote all this before I had had any sort of record deal or whatever it is I, I don't know how I don't even when you put out a record what is it you have like a contract you get to do a couple yeah. yeah, so maybe it's like you're already thinking people will probably hear some of these songs yeah. if I write them. Yeah, whereas for me it was like these are just for me and I'll play them live. That's probably it. Yeah. And then it just happened that this record label wanted to put them out. But it's a freaky thing just feeling constant. <laughs> what, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? I know. Well, wait, I want to talk to you about your music because it's really good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Um, I like have had those songs in my head for days. Oh, really? Yeah. The <laughs> melodies keep finding me. They're so good. I kind of wanted to ask you like, what's your big influence? Like, what are you, what are you like listening to when you're, you know, getting psyched about writing the music for yeah. This stuff. Yeah. For these for these songs, a lot of them were written in Birmingham in a hotel while I was making a movie. Um so a lot of them are written on a MIDI keyboard. Yeah. Uh but a couple of like the songs off of the album and, and the special were just songs I had written sincerely with a guitar, you know? Mm-hmm. Um just strumming around and then recorded on Garage Band and then I recorded them with a friend of mine. And uh, I heard back the mixes and was just so embarrassed by it. 
by the how sincere it was being in the lyrics and how my attempt at metaphor and that kind of stuff. So somebody at a comedy show was like, can you do a bit tonight that isn't stand-up? And I was like, oh, sure. And I was just in hell listening back to all these mixes. Like, what did I do? I rented a studio and I just like, well, I'm not a musician. I'm a stand-up comedian. So I just changed the lyrics Wow. from this song about something to being a, a song about my mom drinking herself to death. <laughs> I think it was already about my mom drinking herself to death. Right. But I just changed it to be very blunt. Right. You like shifted the tone. To yeah. be like, there's no metaphor. This is a song about my mom partying to death. And I sang it instead of doing stand-up. And then people... I remember at the show, like, started filming me, and I, that's that would never happen before, like, filming my set. Wow. You know, so I was like, maybe I should do that. So I did that with a couple of those songs and then just kept writing, and it was easier for me to write more synthesizer-based songs and, like, more synthy songs because I would always be out of town and would bring my little MIDI keyboard and just kind of mess with sounds on that and try to come up with stuff. and yeah. Uh, you know, and also I would do an impression of John Mouse a lot in my stand-up, which is like... Really? I would build a John Mouse song and then um, go, John Mouse, he's like figured out how to make a song to where he doesn't, he can sing about anything and it just is kind of interesting because he's so committed to the character of John Mouse. Oh, and yeah. I would go Big like, time. make a John Mouse kind of style song and then I'd go, baseball, basketball too, I love my cousins and I wear two shoes. <laughs> and I would like do the voice and... And so I I found that if I sang in kind of like a funny little voice, it let me kind of detach from singing this like song that is kind of sad about my mom or whatever identity in some depressing way. I've written music forever, but it's right. just like weird to write music that people might actually hear, especially when it's supposed to be funny. So it's like halfway funny sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's not. <laughs> no, it's, it is really funny. It's cool. Like So I've watched the special twice, and when I was watching it again today, I— was overwhelmed by two things. One, that the music is the perfect soundtrack to me. Like, it works so well in the special. And the other is that the pace of it where it's sort of, you know, you're set at the Floribama and, like, the music and then also the stuff with your family and, like, documentary-style stuff. It's so intimate. And when you guys started making it, was that the vision or did you sort of figure it out as you were going along? It was definitely a lot of figuring it out. Initially, no, though, I they had seen my set, HBO and A24, and then uh, they were interested in making a special. And I just wanted to do uh, the talk. I wanted to do Stop Making Sense for stand-up. Oh, cool. Because I-, I had come up with all these songs, and I-, I knew I wanted my brother to play a guitar solo at the very end. So I was like, what if we build the band throughout? Like the band gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then finally my brother comes out at the very end. And it would be more my kind of aesthetic, which is I like the city. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm a city guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, postmodern art or whatever. <laughs> but then Bo Burnham and Chris Storer got involved, and they said, "I want to. we're going to make this. We're going to figure it out. But I think um, I don't think that's the right idea because you do this whole show about this venue and your mom and how important it is, and you have a venue right there. You know, and I said, if I went back to the Floribama to film this, it would mean I would have to talk to my aunt. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet. Right. And then uh, they said, I think that this would be the opportunity to do it. And uh, how long did it take you to warm up to that? I, I mean, 
pretty quickly. I think cool. that I kind of immediately knew that they were right. And it, I, it was like 10 years or something that I hadn't spoken to her. And I was like, oh, what am I even doing? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have this person like walking around who looks, that she's my mom's identical twin. And it's like, she looks and sounds the same way. And why am I like, <laughs> I, she did made some really stupid decisions and hurt me in a big way, but she was kind of going through a, a grief that I could not imagine, like watching yourself die basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So of course I was like, I mean, you get it. So I, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, I might as well figure that out. And it was terrifying. Yeah. That, that was the, that was, you know, then we did it. So it was like well, really it's so scary. powerful. I feel like, I mean, because not only do you sort of like reunite with her, but it's also like you talk very openly about stuff with your dad. And, and then there's the part where you're talking to your cousin about everything and he like breaks down. I feel like it's so cool. And I just, I wonder like, what was everyone's reaction when you like, I, I, I like really appreciate everybody's openness so much. It's, it's, it's a really powerful story. So I just wonder like, was your family were they into it? Were they scared? Like everybody was excited to talk, you know. I yeah. think it was I wasn't expecting that. Wow. It took a while a while to like lubricate the conversation in a way to where they felt comfortable really talking, but it was very clear that everybody had something that they wanted to say to me or about something, you know. Right. It was a weird it was strange. Um my cousin Wilkes he was just, he's wrecked, you know, yeah. and he's like more uh, hurt by all of this than uh, any of us, any of the other kids, because he still lives in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And so he's still, he's had to really like deal with it in a way that we yeah. all ran away, all the other kids. Yeah, yeah. We're all living in Your brother doesn't states. live in Alabama anymore. No, my brother lives in California now. Oh, cool. And my, uh, yeah, other cousins have moved away, so... He's really dealing with it. He's like still back there. He's he's still a fishing boat captain. He's mm -hmm. and so when he breaks down crying, it's like <laughs> something that he <laughs> he's really dealing with like every moment, worrying and seeing it all, you know. And he's a product of Alabama in the way that the other kids aren't. Yeah. Um yeah, so everybody was really open and it's great. It was weird because I thought that there would be more of a combative you know, vibe, but that that just wasn't the case. Yeah, it was it was kind of uh, difficult to get my aunt. My aunt was like, "I don't want to go on stage," and then we started playing together. We spent like two days. That's not in the thing, in the special, just jamming. Mm -hmm. And then she started to have a lot of fun again. Yeah, she hadn't played guitar or anything since your yeah. mom passed away. Wow, that's so crazy. Yeah, it, you can tell. Like she at the end when you see her on stage that she's like having the time of her life. Yeah. you know, it's cool. She did, and that we cut the song short because we had to make this thing an hour long. But we played the <laughs> full song, and like my aunt is like dancing and pointing at me. And you know, the way you do it is you do two shows for these comedy specials. Uh -huh. And so like the first one, she's pretty stiff and just singing and enjoying herself. And the second one, she's like, Woo! <laughs> she's like soaking it up. Yeah, you know? It's pretty cool. That is really cool. You know, I have to say, like, as I was watching it, I've like, like seen bits and pieces of your comedy, but I wasn't super familiar with your whole story. And so watching it, I was like, holy shit, there's some weird similarities here because Allison and I are, identical twins mm -hmm. and we play music together and we're from Alabama there's some substance abuse problems thrown in the mix there's like some family stuff thrown in the mix I was like wow there's like some kind of weird kismet like 
connection between what you do and what I do. I know. It's cool. <laughs> That's why I wanted y'all to come. I ran into Allison a while back, and it's so funny because I've been a fan of y'all's music for forever, like all of the different stuff, every band. So I've always known and thought, how funny is it that there's these two twin sisters who like started playing together and sometimes still do. And then I saw y'all again. Allison was playing with you at the Jawbreaker show. Yep. And I, it was a big reminder because I was in the thick of trying to get anybody to come watch me do my show, mm-hmm. the Golden One show. I was like, wow, there's, those are two twins from Alabama performing <laughs> to a sold-out crowd at the Palladium, which is so cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. And so whenever, then I saw Allison uh, somewhere just in public, maybe at this restaurant called Cindy's. Mm-hmm. I was like, should I go talk to her right now and like confess all of these things about me to her, you know? I think, no, I'll wait. <laughs> and then I saw her again at a party mm-hmm. where we were on the same level. And then I was like, oh, I'm from Alabama too. And I remember y'all from the Ackleys. And then when I got, you know, they're throwing this premiere, I was like, I got to figure out if the Crutchfield sisters will come. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, we were so happy. And also it's cool. I was here. So I was yeah, like, I how was, cool. yeah, it was And perfect. you got to meet my aunt. I got to meet your aunt and your aunt sort of psychically knew Allison was, came out first, oh, yeah. which was cool. She's just like, you said, oh, this is Allison and Katie. They're from Alabama. They're twins. And she just looked at Allison and just goes, you came out first. Yeah. <laughs> which she did. Which is so funny. It's so weird. Yeah. But uh, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask is, and this is a question I'm sure you get all the time, but I find it interesting. When you're writing a song, like for example, mm-hmm. this, new, this new album, mm-hmm. for the song Fire, you start with this crazy melody in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you just have been going... Yep. <laughs> You've been humming that around, and the, or do you have these lyrics? And then this, this, because I don't. When I I'm writing a melody, it's like I am big and I have a lot of shoes. A lot of the stuff I do is slappity do. It's like there's nothing. There's no <laughs> cool singing. Like when people can actually sing good, how do you, what do you how do you even write a song? There's <laughs> uh, like there's too many options. Yeah, I mean it's funny. I I feel like the song Fire is really strange experience it's like it's its own experience like I've never quite written a song the way I wrote fire because I was in a car driving from Birmingham to KC and to get there you have to drive through Memphis so when I was I was driving Kevin was in the passenger seat and I got this melody in my head and it was that exact like that Mm -hmm. melody and I just I knew immediately, I was like, this is good. I was, mm-hmm. like, I was like, this is cool. I need to hold on to this. But I like couldn't, I was driving. I couldn't do any, I couldn't record it. I didn't want to sing it. I like didn't want to lose it. I didn't want it to invite other opinions. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, I'm just going to hold on to this in my brain for a minute. And as I was doing that, I was driving over the Mississippi River from Memphis to West Memphis. And I just started to kind of like put these placeholder lyrics, which is what I, I mean, my my lyrics sound very similar to yours when you're writing a song. Well, it's just sort of like, and I like, I sing something into my phone and it sounds insane and then I just sort of like fill in the gaps later. But weirdly, when I was writing that song, the lyrics just came to me in my head and they didn't change. Like everything that's in the song now was like what came to me at that time. So I drove for like another like hour and then we stopped in somewhere in Arkansas and I like immediately wrote it down really fast. And um, then like when we got home, I wrote that middle part of the song. But um, but that, so that's its own thing. That's usually not how it goes. Usually it's like I just, I, think of a melody or I'll be sitting like at a piano or at a guitar or something and I'll kind of be playing chords and just sing over it and come up with something. Um, 
And then the lyrics come way later, and it's like a like I labor over them. It takes me forever. It's the only that's the part that takes the longest. The melodies come very fast. Same, yeah. yeah. Lyrics, it's hell. It's hell. It's absolute hell. You want to do a good job? <laughs> For me, it's like I got to do a good job, man. I got to figure out how to make it funny every. Yeah, that's even harder. You like seconds. have another but like layer I, of it. I have a theory. Though. What's that? <laughs> if you were to sit and tell a ten minute story about what fire means to you. Mm-hmm. And you have a couple different little stories with nice little tags. <laughs> and then you sing fire. And people can understand very clearly what you're saying. So maybe you project the lyrics behind you. People would find things funny. Yeah, probably. Yeah. About the song. Totally. I think every song is a comedy song. If you <laughs> explain the hell out of it right before you sing it. Totally. Like I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why maybe comedy music is a scam. It's a scam. <laughs> It's cool. I feel like just even through like talking to you right now, I'm like, I think about like ha- me explaining my songs and I've like, I mean, I've just like explained them to death over the last like few days and I just like walk out and I'm like, I just sound like an asshole. It's so serious. It's so like heavy. You know no, what I mean? And I, I feel, love it. I, I feel like it's like, it's cool like to, to bring comedy into it. I think is like, you know, it's, it's a nice break. Well, yeah, I don't know. I think people like that kind of stuff. I, I, I think that people like hearing about how songs are made. And I think like people like hearing about um, people who they think are like successful being poor. Yeah. Like I wish somebody would have reminded me or told me when I was 17 and I I had dreams of being uh, in the faint or something like that, that that they would, I wish the faint would have like written a piece going, actually we make about $40,000 a year. Make a teacher salary. Yeah, totally. (laughs) We're not famous, even though it seems like we are when we're playing to like a 300 seat room. Totally. We're we're actually not, we're doing okay, I guess. Yeah, Indie Rock is a scam. (laughs) the best it's ever going to get. Right. Yeah, it's a scam. (laughs) I wish somebody would have told me that Mm -hmm. because- it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> it's it really is. hard. I know. I know. And like a record deal is really exciting, but it's not like there's this like TLC, the band, T- the group, TLC yep. interview of from the 90s where they explain how a record deal actually works. It's the coolest thing. Like, and that's a big record deal. Like oh, yeah. One of those fancy ones. What do they say? They just talk about. Well, you get a million dollar record deal, but then this goes to this and then this, and then you actually have to tour for two years to pay off this and you don't actually ever make any money. Yeah. yeah. Unless, until that's all paid off and then you get the thing. Like, and then they stopped, I I was, um, through doing comedy, I had a conversation with uh, Mark Hoppus from Blink-182. Wow. And he was talking about how Blink-182 is like one of the last bands to ever get like a record deal in the way that, they are romanticized, right. you know? And even then it was three years of worldwide touring to just kind of... Break even. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, I mean, yeah, I not to complain, but yeah, it, it's insane. It's like an insane amount of work. I feel like the music industry it was the same for like many, many decades. It worked the exact same way. And then now in the last 10, 15 years, it changes like every year. Where like yeah. what mat what the stuff you have to focus on the stuff that matters how you actually make money um it's just like with streaming culture and all that stuff I mean I could talk about it forever but it like just keeping up with like oh how do I even make a sustainable living at this um, yeah. is like constantly evolving it's crazy all my favorite musicians I'm like how do you guys survive I have comedy <laughs> so like I get to go by myself yeah totally I, I know comedy touring seems like 
pretty laid That's back. Where it's at. Yeah. And now I do music. I just played a. I have a guitar and a maybe a keyboard, mm-hmm. and those are my live instruments. And the rest is a backing track. So I'm doing karaoke, which I. <laughs> I wit, you know, that that's just all I got. Like I can't tour with a band or else I don't make a living. But then I'm doing the same sh- rooms that some bands are doing with five members of the band, and I'm like, how the hell do these people do this? Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it, it's funny. I I was just I'm I am grateful for like where I'm at with it, just because like I feel like I'm in a position where I can do my project in a lot of different ways and play with a lot of different people and kind of it's always new and different. I feel like you get to a point of success where, you know, it's very like pop and polished and rehearsed and it's the same people every time and the show's exactly the same. And I mean, you make a lot of money, but I'm grateful that I kind of have to slap it together sometimes, you know? Yeah, it's cool. Like it's like creatively, I think, very fulfilling. Do you find being a musician, because this isn't a new thing with comedy where it's like comedians are cool. Yeah. Mysterious. They are, yeah. And that's like absolutely not who I am. (laughs) It's not true with musicians either, but it's all an act. (laughs) Isn't it? Do you ever find like, because you're a pretty genuine person, you know, it doesn't seem like you're like trying to hide behind some sunglasses and a cigarette (laughs) or whatever it is. Um, Did you ever have the desire to be like, like a traditionally mysterious, cool singer person? I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I feel like with musicians and comedians... Anytime I've been at an event where there's both, it's like every like people sit on opposite sides of the room and like musicians just think that comedians are cool and comedians think that musicians are cool. It's like the grass is always greener. Yeah, but and then there's porn stars in the middle yeah, and they're exactly. like everyone <laughs> bringing everyone <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. I feel like um, like yes and no. I always felt really confident. Honestly, I now looking back in hindsight, it was probably only like a year and a half period, but there was like this very significant period of my life in the beginning of writing songs where I just really was a dork and had no friends and, like, was really lonely. And I feel like in that small chunk of time, I really developed this confidence and this voice. And so by the time I was really sharing my music, it was formed, you know? Like, what I was doing was kind of, was born in a way, and it it's obviously evolved because I was, like, 15 years old and now I'm older, but it's, in in another way, like, really the exact same. So yeah. I never really like felt like I wanted to have a persona. And granted, I we all like self-mythologize. It's just like natural as for like a performer, you know, but in a way I just feel like I've always tried to just be myself. Same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I think the same for me. I think I'm lucky that people are, if they just now are finding out about me, it's probably good they didn't find out about me a long same. time ago. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it could have been that. <laughs> that's, that's, could have been kind of weird. Yeah. But I think that, I think new people are going to find out about you because of this same. album. I feel the same way about your special. I'm like, it's going to, it's all going to happen. Hopefully together we'll be able to, <laughs> together. we'll be able to represent Alabama. <laughs> we'll put Alabama back on the map. Yeah, yeah, totally. It'll be us and we'll be going, oh, you know, Katie from Waxahachie, this is where she used to get sweet tea or something. And <laughs> Milo's, said, yeah. Yeah, and Milo's, right. Milo's, yeah. And this is where Whitmer Thomas used to get well, that white queso dip from <laughs> Mexican oh restaurants. God. That's at every Mexican restaurant. <laughs> I really yeah. miss that. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really, really good. good stuff. I think, I, you know, I've been looking at my phone because I screenshotted your uh, album and I've been thinking that it was 12.45. What time is it? It's like, it's two. We've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> Okay. This has really flown by, it, though. It has, yeah, totally. Well, cool. I think I'll say everybody go get Katie's new album, Waxahachie, St. Cloud. It's, I think it's your best album. 
Thank you. And everyone go watch Whitmer Thomas' new special. By the time yeah. this comes out, it will have been out. It's called oh, The Golden One. Oh, and get my album on the And the album, vinyl. dude. The, on vinyl. It's, at, it's out now. Is it your we first were... vinyl? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's exciting. Have you gotten to hold it and see it and all that nope. stuff? <gasps> That's coming. That's a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Katie Crutchfield, Whitmer Thomas, thank you so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast. The brilliant new Waxahachie record, St. Cloud, is available now. And The Golden One is available on HBO Now and HBO Go. You can also get songs from The Golden One available to stream or on CD and LP. Yeah, and the LP version has a couple tracks not featured in the special, which is very cool. Today's show is recorded by Claire Morrison at Bedrock LA and uh, Nick by you and I in our respective hashtag stay home studios. Keep the home fires burning. <laughs> our co-producer for this show, as always, is Mark Yoshizumi. Thank you, Mark. If you enjoyed today's show, definitely go back to our 2019 Valentine's Day episode, which features many artist couples, including Katie Crutchfield and Kevin Morby. And for another fantastic musician and fantastic comedian in conversation, check out last week's show. That was Wyatt Sinek with Black Thought of the Roots. And while you're digging through the crates of the TalkHouse archive, generally go read uh, Katie Crutchfield writing about Jenny Lewis's record, The Voyager, from uh, a few years back. Hit us up on our socials at TalkHouse across the board. And the TalkHouse podcast theme tune is by The Range. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson. Peace. And staycation. <laughs>